before we begin, I want to say a word of thanks to all of you who have been so encouraging to me regarding this particular series. I have been buoyed by your prayers and your encouragement for what I do each and every Lord's Day, and I'm so thankful. This is the final message in this series of messages from Mark's Gospel on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Each of the previous messages in this mini-series has not actually dealt with the text of Mark 15, but rather has dealt with the theological and physical implications of the cross from other portions of the Bible. And so this morning, our message will indeed cover verses 22 to 39 of Mark 15. Let's read this portion of God's Word together. You follow along as I read. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The outline for this wonderful narrative contains six elements or six features that I want you to know this morning. In verses 22 to 28, we're going to see the details of Christ's actual crucifixion, the details. 
In verses 29 to 32, we're going to look at the detractors to Christ's character. His detractors. And then in verses 33 to 36, I want us to look at the desolation of Christ by His heavenly Father. And then in verse 37, the death of Christ itself. Verse 38, the destruction of the veil of the temple. And finally, in verse 39, the declaration of Christ by the centurion. Very easy outline for you to remember, maybe even possibly to, to memorize. The details, the detractors, the desolation, the death, the destruction, and the declaration. First of all, let's look at the details of Christ's crucifixion. In verses 22 to 28, I want to quickly give you five details about the actual crucifixion of Christ. And the reason why I want to give them to you is not because I want to go into unnecessary detail, but the very fact that Scripture says what it says is always important to us, including all of the details. They all are extremely important. Let's look at the first one. The first detail about Christ's crucifixion is that it took place beyond the actual city of Jerusalem itself. And that was because for both the Jews and the Romans, their custom was to perform execution, these capital offenses, outside the city walls. If you read your Old Testament, for instance, you find in Leviticus 24, verses 13 to 14, these words, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who is cursed, that is, one who has cursed the Lord, who's blasphemed the Lord, outside the camp, and let all who hear him lay their hands on his head, then let all the congregations stone him. In other words, it was speaking of that desolation, that idea of taking someone outside of the city and doing to him what is necessary. The Lord had commanded this. The same thing, by the way, is mentioned in Numbers 15.35 for someone who broke the Sabbath. They were to go outside the city by force and then someone would hold their head physically and others would take stones and they would crash those stones against that person's head and that for breaking the Sabbath, and that outside the city walls. You remember Naboth in 1 Kings 21, 13, he was stoned outside the camp, and even in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, Stephen was driven outside the city and also stoned. So it is with Jesus, who according to John 19, 20, was crucified near the city, but nonetheless outside the city walls. And notice from verse 22 that it says, that his execution was a place outside the city called Golgotha. Or, with the emphasis on the last syllable, Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's interesting, the Greek word for this Semitic word is the word cranion, from which we receive cranium, the place of the skull. And I can't help but mention is this not to you, as it is to me, the most hideous name and place for the sinless Son of God to die, the place of the skull? 
There's a second detail I want you to know. It's given in verse 23. It says, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why? Why didn't Jesus take this wine and myrrh which was offered to him? Well, the answer actually reveals the integrity of Jesus himself and his willingness to suffer at the hands of these sinners. You say, how so? Well, according to Proverbs chapter 31, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says this, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his trouble no more. In other words, and even with an old tradition that was started all the way back to Proverbs chapter 31, there were women from the city who would go to these places outside the city walls, this place of Golgotha, the place of the skull, and they would go there, and as a tradition from Proverbs 31, that very passage, they would take wine mixed with, with myrrh that would be a, a narcotic, and they would place it into the, on the mouth of a person because they wanted that person to have the deadness of the pain of their suffering to subside. Just as that verse talks about. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. Give him wine because his life has been bitter. It had this narcotic property in it, this wine mixed with myrrh, in order for the condemned man to have his excruciating pain deadened. But Jesus refused it. Why? because he did not want to deaden the pain of his own suffering on the cross. He wasn't about to take a narcotic. He was going to accept the full pain and suffering that the cross would allow. Do you remember what he said back in Mark 10, 38? You do not know what you are asking, talking to his unwitting disciples. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, do you understand what you're asking for? Do you not realize that this particular death that I'm going to undergo is a death that is hideous, that is awful, that is excruciating? Do you know what you're asking for? He knew. He knew precisely what was awaiting him, and now that it is here, he's not going to deaden his pain with any narcotics at all. So when it's offered to his lips, he refuses. Amazing integrity. I can't help but see an implication for our own day, as I'm sure you do. Not, of course, for those who are suffering, say, for instance, through an illness in a hospital bed and receive narcotics, but those who, because of the pain and the problems and the issues of life, are not handling life by accepting the will of God and who, instead of accepting the will of God and going through whatever pain that is, they're taking illegal narcotics in order to deaden the pain. That's what people do, but not our Savior, not Christ. He is going to experience the full weight of the punishment for sin. There's a third detail here I want you to notice. It's given to us in verse 24. It says, And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Having already 
looked extensively at the physical implications of the cross a couple of weeks ago. I don't want to belabor the point here, but I do want to point out to you what the, Roman, what the Roman soldiers did to him. Even though some might have had a piece of loincloth covering those who were to be crucified, it was actually true that most of the people that the Romans crucified were crucified completely naked. The Jews, of course, would have been unnerved by this nakedness. It would have been a shame to them. But the Romans often totally disregarded any Jewish sensibility to a person being publicly humiliated by his nakedness and dying on a cross. But the Romans wanted to do that because the Romans were lording over their authority of the Jews. And when someone who would be committing what they believed was a capital offense were to be crucified, they wanted that person to experience all the shame of such a crucifixion, including dying naked in front of people. And that is no doubt what happened to our Lord. They believed he had committed a capital offense, blasphemy, claiming yourself to be God when only Caesar is God. And of course, what they don't realize that this is the exact and precise and direct fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm 22. Listen to what it says. They look, they stare at me. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Or to say it another way, at Christ's body they stare, and for his clothes they gamble. And this is why we call his death on the cross an ignominious death. That means dishonorable, degrading, shameful. Can you imagine the shame of it all? Not, not just for, for any man, but for our Lord Jesus Christ to die naked on that cross and for them to rip off his clothes and gamble with it. We don't know exactly what Mark has in mind in verse 25 when he says that Jesus was being crucified at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., especially when John chapter 19, verse 14 says that Pilate made his pronouncement of death at the sixth hour, which was 12 noon. It's sometimes difficult to work all of the chronology here and not a contradiction, it's just that we don't have all the facts that we'd need to know. But we do, however, know this, that the last detail, according to Mark in verse 26, is that Jesus was being crucified underneath a sign that says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And because he said himself, in answer to the question, you've said it yourself, yes, I'm the King of the Jews, that's what they say is blasphemy. That's what they say is unacceptable. That's what they say is a capital offense. And for that capital offense, the Roman government, and including the Jews themselves, say, if you want him to die, he will die. Verses 27 and 28 give us another detail, the last in this portion about Christ's crucifixion scene, and that is he was being crucified with two robbers. You see it there? 
They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors, alluding, of course, to Isaiah 53, 12. And the detail that's important about this is that it's not just robbery. It's not just thievery that we're talking about because in their economy, in their government, that would not have been a capital offense. What really is going on here is that the word robber is really the word insurrectionist. That means someone who wanted to overthrow the government. And whoever these two robbers are, they are not robbers in the sense that they pilferal, pilferal, pilferal or steal someone from someone. It is that they themselves are probably Jewish zealots who are intent on overthrowing the Roman government. I told you before that what these people do, these zealots, is that they had these little knives that you could hardly see because they could conceal it with their hand. And they would go into the city of Rome or other places where there would be lots of people, lots of guards, lots of people who were political officials. And in a crowd as they were walking by, they would come up behind such an official or such a centurion and they would slip the dagger in their back and then they would run away through the crowd. That's the zealots. That's what they were doing. Just little by little, they did everything they could to be an insurrectionist, to throw the Roman government in a tizzy. And that's what these two robbers are. In fact, it's interesting to note that even in Mark chapter 15, verse 7, it says, the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. In other words, there was a major uprising. And in the major uprising, Barabbas himself maybe in league with these two robbers, the three of them are now imprisoned because they're involved in this insurrection. And it could even be that Barabbas is the ringleader. And that is why when there comes the next opportunity for crucifixion, these three men are right on the platform to be crucified and instead of the ringleader Barabbas himself being crucified, they say, give us Barabbas. We want Jesus in his place. And so they grant that, but they nevertheless put the two other insurrectionists, one on his right and one on his left, just as Scripture says. And it even says in verse 32, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Isn't it amazing how precise the Word of God is both in its predictions and also in its description. Just amazing to me, all of the finite details coming to pass just as God wants it to occur. Amazing details. And if you just read verses 22 to 28 and you don't understand all of those details, you might say to yourself, well, that's just sort of a, the storyline. It's sort of the buildup to what really is important. No, all of these things are very, very important. But they are a prelude. Notice the detractors. The second element or feature. Notice the account clues us in on the fact that there are really three different groups who were vilifying Christ as he was hanging on the cross. This is amazing. Notice the first group. We, we could call them the crowd in general. This particular general crowd began to sneer at Christ 
as they're walking by. You see verse 29? Those passing by were hurling abuse at him. Now we don't know exactly whom all of these people are, but they may well have been the ones who had crowded into Caiaphas' palace. Maybe even the very crowd of people who were yelling for Barabbas. I think they probably were. I think they're probably the very ones who were in Caiaphas' palace who were the ones fomenting the religious leaders and the religious leaders them for the purpose of having Jesus destroyed. They're the ones shouting for Barabbas to be released and now they have exactly what they want. Jesus is going to be crucified rather than Barabbas. And what are they doing? The Bible says, Mark says, they were wagging their heads. We understand that. Just someone who might say, Oh, who do you think you are? We want Barabbas. Christ is to be crucified. And again, even if they don't understand it, it's the unwitting fulfillment of Psalm 22. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. They do the exact same thing that Proverbs or that, that uh, Psalm 22 says they're going to do. In other words, they're saying, if God really loves this man, let him deliver him. Crowd. What are they alluding to when they say what they say about Christ? This is what they say. Ha! Ah, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. What are they referring to? Well, they're referring to what Christ said earlier to them, that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And of course, what he meant was the temple of his body. And they totally misunderstood that. They thought he was referring to the actual temple, Herod's temple, God's temple. And so they wagged their heads at Christ. And to put it another way, they say, before you are about to destroy our temple, you better save yourself first. Wagging their heads back and forth, sneering at him. They're saying, come down from the cross and then try to save the temple. It's not just the crowd in general. It's actually the religious leaders themselves. Look at verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. You could just hear and sense the, the tone, the attitude, the vitriolic sneering. You know, they wanted to destroy Jesus all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You realize that as we have gone through Mark's gospel, this has been a ringing theme all the way back in the third chapter, all the way back in the beginning of his ministry. 
All they've wanted to do is set out to achieve one goal, and that is to destroy Jesus Christ. And now they have him. They have him exactly where they want him. And so they begin to sneer and mock at him. One writer says, In their eyes, Jesus was a contemptible caricature of sovereignty. And they reproached him. In other words, you say you're the king of the Jews? No king who has the kind of sovereignty that the king of the Jews has is going to allow himself to be hung on a cross. You know what they may even be referring to? You see in verse 31 where it says, He saved others, he cannot save himself. What are they referring to? What, what does that mean when they say, He saved others? Well, it might even be a reference to his healing ministry. They were around. They saw what Christ had done. They saw who he'd healed. They, they might even be saying something like this. He, he saved other people. He healed them. He can't even heal himself. But of course, beloved, you and I know this. It is not that he cannot save himself. It is that he is choosing not to save himself so that he would save others. That's the whole point. He is deliberately, voluntarily choosing not to save himself so that he would save us. That, my friends, is profound. Profound! Jesus Christ is choosing not to save himself by coming down from that cross so that he would save others. Including, by the way, even one of the condemned criminals who was hanging right beside him. Look at verse 32, the end of it. This is an amazing statement. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now, now that is amazing to me. I sat for hours this week, and I read that over and over and over again, and I said, I don't understand that. These men, these robbers they were experiencing the exact same kinds of excruciating pain that Jesus Christ himself was experiencing on that cross. And while they should have been focusing about their own pain, their own agony, instead, they're not thinking of anyone else except criticizing and insulting the man in the middle. That is amazing to me what sin does. You mean to tell me that while you and I would be in agony, hanging on that cross, going through all of those physical implications that we talked about last time, and that is not enough for them not to keep their mind on their own physical pain? Can you imagine that? They should be worrying about their own suffering instead of hurling abuse at Jesus. It's incredible to me. And while they're doing that, he is loving those he came to save, even including the very man who would later be saved, who is at that very moment hurling abuse at him. 
That's incredible. That's incredible. And right in the midst of all of this, right in the midst of all of this criticism and mocking and insulting of the divine one, all of that, all that the human beings right now in Christ's life who are perpetrating these things against him, what's the Father about to do? Look at verse 33. The desolation. At that precise moment, and for the sake of effect, and as a preparation for the Father's abandonment of the Son, verse 33 says, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. What's going on? What's happening? At noon, when, when the sun was supposed to be at its apex, there is an eclipse, and it remains that way for three hours. I don't know how dark it was, but I think if there was a complete eclipse of the sun, it would be very dark. You might not even be able to see your hand in front of your face. You might not even be able to see your hand in front of your face. It's gloomy, dark, dreary. Luke even says in chapter 23, verse 45 of his narrative, literally, the sun failing. God just took that sun that you and I enjoy from the sky and he put it out. Just put it out. You say, why? What's the effect? God, the Father, was injecting a miracle into the natural realm, shadowing the land with darkness because it would be the fulfillment of another prophecy. Amos 8.9 and it says this, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, and he borrows that language of the eschatological day of the Lord, and God says this, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. God wants everything a certain way. And for effect, he says in verse 10 of that same passage in Amos, and I will make it a time for mourning for an only son. Every last detail brought to fruition. God is mourning for his only son. And because it has cosmic implications for the entire universe, God says, it's dark! dark. When my son is on the cross bearing the weight of sin, there is nothing but darkness. Blackness. That's the effect. That's the effect of crucifixion. That's the effect of the crucifixion of the Son of God. William Lane says, the darkening of the sun makes a critical moment in history and emphasizes the eschatological and cosmic dimensions of Jesus' suffering upon the cross. 
He goes on to say, There is, however, another more ominous aspect to the darkening. In the plague of darkness which preceded the Passover, darkness over the land was the token that the curse of God rested upon it. This is the curse. There was a curse upon the land. It was started by Adam himself. And God now says, in order for that curse to be reversed, there will also be darkness on the land. That curse has to be dealt with. And it's going to be dealt with with another darkness. It's dark because God's judgment is being meted out on Jesus Christ. It has to be dark. There's no brightness to this moment at all. None. And when the darkness is at its most ominous moment, the universe is struck with the most awful, terrible reality to ever come upon time or eternity. The Father abandons the Son. Verse 34, translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beloved, the only moment throughout all eternity when there is desolation toward the second person of the Godhead. The God-man is shunned, alienated from his Father. And it isn't that Jesus in any sense ceases to be God himself. No. He is divine. But there has to be a real death not a cessation of life from deity. That would never happen. God never ceases to be God. Deity cannot die. But in his humanness, Jesus is separated from the Father. That's why theologians call this the spiritual death of Christ. He died spiritually. He didn't cease to exist in his deity. He died physically and he was separated spiritually from the Father. Why? Because we are separated from the Father spiritually. It had to happen that way. Desolation. Alienation. Dereliction. The sharp edge of this world, of this word, Lane says, must not be blunted. Jesus' cry of dereliction is the inevitable sequel to the horror which he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. It must be understood in the perspective of the holy wrath of God and the character of sin which cuts the sinner off from God. Now on the cross, he who had lived holy for the Father experienced the full alienation from God which the judgment he had assumed entailed. His cry expresses the profound horror of separation from God. In the manner of his death, Jesus was cut off from the Father. The darkness declared the same truth. The sinless Son of God died the sinner's death and experienced the bitterness of desolation. This was the cost of providing a ransom for the many. The cry as a ruthless authenticity which provides the assurance that the price of sin has been paid in full. It had to be this way, beloved. It had to be. It's not a fake death. It's not a look-alike death. It's not a mystical alienation. It's real. It happened. And of course, the people totally misunderstood what was happening. They thought he was calling upon... Elijah, And maybe because it was so dark, they couldn't even see physically the person of Jesus. And maybe they only heard his cry. 
And so they thought he was calling on Elijah the prophet to help him down from the cross. You see, there was a tradition in Jewish history that when there was a great time of need, a critical time of need, that they could call upon Elijah and he would come and minister to them and rescue them. And so they thought that's what he's doing in verses 35 and 36. He's calling upon Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. They don't know what's going on. They don't understand. And then, at the very moment of this alienation, at the very moment of this abandonment, what I would consider the most ominous verse in all of the Bible, Mark 15, 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He breathed his last. It's done. Just after uttering his words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He uttered some inarticulate groan, some cry. Not even words, just some guttural sound. And then he voluntarily gave his life up at that very moment. Violent, sacrificial death. Oh, beloved, what a death he died. Yes, it's, it's true, and... I want to affirm that it's true, that Jesus' death is utterly unique. That's right. But in another sense, beloved, he also provides a perfect model in his death. That's what Peter tells us for our own dying to self. That's what we take from this. This is unique to the Son of God. It is unique. We could never in this sense do what he did. But Peter says his death was a model for you, an example for you to follow in his steps. And what must that be? Well, even though he was sinless, we are sinful, and that means we must learn from this how to die to self. That has to be what this is as an implication for us. One anonymous writer put it this way, when you are forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught and you sting and hurt with the insult or oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, when your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, or any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endure it, endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any raiment that is clothing, any climate, any society, any attitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or itch after condemnation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that 
is dying to self. When you see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself, can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that, that is dying to self. He's our model. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. And then the fifth element, verse 38, the destruction of the veil of the temple. Because Jesus has now died, the Jews' relationship to God is forever different. You say, how so? Because verse 38, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? What God is saying is that my presence, intimacy with me, acceptability with me is never and will never be from this temple. That's the point. Intimacy, closeness, relationship, acceptability, it comes by virtue of the cross of Jesus Christ. In order to punctuate that, he tears it from the top to the bottom. No man did this. No human being did this. God did it, and he wanted every one of the Jews to see it. He wanted every one of them to know that God's dwelling place is not in a temple made with human hands. The way into God's presence is through the death of Christ on the cross. And that veil was torn from top to bottom to show that God has done it. It cannot be hidden from sight. It cannot be repaired. It cannot be replaced. It's over. Jesus is the living way to God. Jesus said the temple would be destroyed in Mark 13, and this is the first fruits of it. And when it finally happened in 70 A.D., even to our own day as we speak, that temple has never been rebuilt. God was saying something. And he used a miraculous occurrence to make his point. You Jews... You must understand that Jesus is Messiah. That's the point. This is a verse for Jewish evangelism. And to make sure that the Gentiles themselves are not left out, verse 39, the declaration by the centurion himself. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is an amazing statement. I'm even venturing to say to you this morning that this was the third miraculous occurrence, the third miraculous idea. Darkness over the land, veil rent from top to bottom, and a revelation of divine information given to a Gentile pagan centurion, the very one who was standing guarding Jesus Christ while he died on that cross. I think it's a lot like what Peter Experience when divine revelation came to him and he said when answer to the question who am I said you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus said flesh and blood did not reveal that to you but my father who is in heaven this was a revelation from God this is a pagan man this is a Gentile man and you know what's happening here he saves 
a Jewish zealot insurrectionist on the cross, and he saves a pagan centurion just off the cross, and God is bringing Jew and Gentile together. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. First two physical, spiritual converts to Jesus Christ, even as he is on that cross, is a Jew and a Gentile, and that's all there is in the world, Jews and Gentiles. God's making a point. The detail, the detractors, the desolation, the death, the destruction, the declaration. It's all here. It's all here. Is this not an amazing text of the Word of God? Bishop J.C. Ryle, great Anglican pastor of yesteryear, he so wonderfully sums up these things. Here's what he says. Listen and listen carefully. First of all, we see Jesus delivered into the hands of the Roman soldiers as a criminal condemned to death. He before whom the whole world will one day stand and be judged allowed himself to be sentenced unjustly and given over into the hands of wicked men. And why was this? It was that we, the poor sinful children of men, believing on him, might be delivered from the pit of destruction and the torment of the prison of hell. It was that we might be set free from every charge in the day of judgment and be presented faultless before God the Father with exceeding joy. Secondly, we see Jesus insulted and made a laughingstock by the Roman soldiers. They clothed him with purple and derision and put a crown of thorns on his head in mockery of his kingdom. They smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him as one utterly contemptible and no better than the filth of the world. And why was this? It was that we, vile as we are, might have glory, honor, and eternal life through faith in Christ's atonement. It was done that we might receive into God's kingdom with triumph at the last day and receive the crown of glory that fadeth not away. Thirdly, we see Jesus stripped of his garments and crucified naked before his enemies. The soldiers who led him away parted his garments, casting lots upon them. And why was this? It was that we, who have no righteousness of our own, might be clothed in the perfect righteousness that Christ has wrought out for us and not stand naked before God at the last day. It was done that we, who are defiled with sin, might have a wedding garment wherein we may sit down by the side of angels and not be ashamed. Fourthly, we see Jesus suffering the most ignominious and humiliating of all deaths, even the death of the cross. It was the punishment reserved for the worst of malefactors. The man on whom it was inflicted was counted a curse. It is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And why was this? It was that we who are born of sin and children of wrath might be counted blessed for Christ's sake. It was done to remove the curse which we all deserve because of sin by laying it on Christ. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. Fifthly, we see Christ reckoned a transgressor and a sinner. With him they crucified two thieves. He who had done no sin and in whom there was no guile was numbered with the transgressors. And why was this? It was that we who are miserable transgressors, both by nature and practice, may be reckoned innocent for Christ's sake. It was done that we who are worthy of nothing but condemnation may be counted worthy to escape God's judgment and be pronounced not guilty before the assembled world. Lastly, we see Jesus mocked when dying as one who was an imposter and unable to save himself. And why was this? 
It was that we in our last hours, through faith in Christ, may have strong consolation. It all came to pass that we might enjoy strong assurance, may know whom we have believed, and may go down the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil. Ryle ends by saying, let us leave the passage with a deep sense of the enormous debt which all believers owe to Christ. All that they have and are and hope for may be traced up to the doing and dying of the Son of God. Through His condemnation, they have acquittal. Through His sufferings, peace. Through His shame, glory. Through His death, life. Their sins were imputed to Him. His righteousness is imputed to them. No wonder that St. Paul says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Finally, let us leave the passage with the deepest sense of Christ's unutterable love to our souls. Let us remember what we are, corrupt, evil, and miserable sinners. Let us remember who the Lord Jesus is, the eternal Son of God, the maker of all things. And then let us remember that for our sakes, Jesus voluntarily endured the most painful, horrible, and disgraceful death Surely the thought of this love should constrain us daily to live not unto ourselves but unto Christ. It should make us ready and willing to present our bodies a living sacrifice to Him who lived and died for us. Let the cross of Christ be often before our minds. Rightly understood, no object in all Christianity is so likely to have a sanctifying as well as a comforting effect on our soul. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stricken, stricken smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Thank you, Christ. At a moment, we would say in our prayer to you, yes, thank you, yes, it had to happen, but no, no, Christ, don't die. Don't breathe your last. But yes, yes, for me, for me. Thank you. Thank you. In Christ's name.